Welcome back to The Emily Show. Thank you for being here. There is so much to talk about today. And um, my cat's decided that he wants to play fetch. So if you hear Fred rolling around in the background, he's just, he's having a moment um, in my office right now and apparently likes to play fetch because why not? Because it's loud, (laughs) perhaps. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking a bit about a lot of different things and just kind of doing a a general catch-up. We need to talk about Brittany. Of course, the Rittenhouse trial closing arguments just happened as I am recording this. There's updates in the Alec Baldwin Rust set tragedy and the Astro World tragedy. And we are going to just go through those as quickly as we can to get all up to date. So we should we should really just get into it. But before that, I'm going to start with a quote, me saying, but before that, like six times this episode, it's going to be a, but one more thing, kind of an episode today. Normally we start with a quote with some of the heavier topics we don't, but today, the only thing that really comes to mind is she's free, literally the whole internet on Friday, because Britney Spears's conservatorship was terminated. And we're going to talk about that right now, which means I just need to roll the intro so we can just talk about it because Britney's free. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. I really was skeptical that this was going to happen. I was nervous. I wasn't sure. I was apprehensive, I guess, at best. I was apprehensive at best that Judge Penny would actually terminate the conservatorship. And I know there were no objections. There was nothing that we could see in the court documents or things that had been filed leading up to this to indicate that she might not grant it. But yet I was nervous. I was. I was nervous on Friday uh, leading up to this hearing. And it was a very quick hearing. And interestingly enough, Um, I'm going to pull up the minute order for those watching on the YouTube video to see. But interestingly enough, um, Viv did not attend this hearing. Now, she no longer represents James Spears, but the motion that was on calendar was filed by Vivian Theron on James Spears' behalf because the motion to terminate was filed by James Spears. So that was interesting to me that even though she was the attorney filing the motion, she was not present in court. So when we pull up this uh, minute order, it breaks down, of course, the attorneys that were present in court and the petition that we're covering. This is the petition to terminate the conservatorship filed on September 7th by James Spears. The date though, I thought this was filed in October. I don't think when maybe it was filed in September, so much has been filed in this case. I'm just like, what? But it was attended by Jody Montgomery, who was the conservator of the person by James Spears, who's the former and suspended conservator of the estate by Lynn Spears, Brittany's mother, by John Zabel, the temporary conservator of the estate by Lorianne Wright, one of the attorneys for Jody Montgomery, Marie Mondia, who is another attorney. The rest of these are all attorneys. Um, Alex, 
Wingarten, Yasha Bronstein, Justin Gould, Gold, Matthew Rosengart, Lisa McCurdy, Gladstone Jones, Lynn Swanson, Kevin Colley, Geraldine Wild, and Gerald Cohen, but no Vivian Thuren. And the minute order says the following, that the matter was called for hearing. The court takes testimony, which means it heard from the attorneys. And then the court finds that sufficient evidence has been provided to grant the matter on calendar this date based upon the reading of the moving papers and consideration of all presented evidence. The petition to terminate conservatorship filed on 9-7-2021 by petitioner James Spears is granted. The court finds and determines that a conservatorship of the person and estate of Brittany Jean Spears is no longer required and is terminated effective this date. That means immediately. With the caveat that John Zabel, as a follow-up and conclusion of his services as temporary conservator of the estate, is to complete the following and then lists the two things. John Zabel is to file a substituted judgment, which has been filed with the court this date, and shall be assigned a hearing date of December 8th, 2021 at 1.30 in this department. John Zabel is ordered to transfer assets into the trust, and the court on its own motion reschedules all matters set for December 8th, as indicated below, and rescheduled everything to January 19th. So all of the next, um, all of the next financial petitions and the 12th accounting and all of that is going to come before the court on January 18th. I'm sure there will be things filed before that date and we will see uh, those things filed before that date. And this isn't done all the way yet. This is done insofar as Brittany is no longer under a conservatorship, but the financial stuff is still not done, and there is still wrangling over subpoenas sent to TriStar, Brittany's former business uh, management company headed by Lou Taylor, and subpoenas for Robin Greenhill, who also worked with TriStar. There's also these issues of subpoena outstanding with regard to James Spears. And we heard Matthew Rosengart touch on that in press conferences outside of court, saying that he would continue to pursue those subpoenas if Brittany wished to. Seeing that in June she was in court saying that she wants everybody in jail, I think that she is inclined to continue forward with these subpoenas to figure out what had happened um, and what malfeasance or misfeasance or fraud had gone on in her conservatorship. And if there's money where it should not be, but we'll continue to see the fight over the 12th accounting. You know, the one, the one that asked for all the lawyer's fees, like the $500,000 for media matters for James Spears and the over a million dollar to Vivian Theron's law firm Holland and Knight. We'll see all of that come into court on January 19th unless the court moves the date again, which is always possible. But for now, Brittany is not under the thumb of anyone. She is able to make her own decisions. Things are being moved into a trust. Her attorney, Rosengard, spoke about safety nets, which means there is a plan in place to make sure that her money is taken care of, that she can't be taken advantage of, and that she is able to feel less restricted in living her life, which is no less uh, than she deserves. And who knows? Who knows if we'll see new music from Britney or another tour, but now she has the choice. She has Rosengard to help her moving forward, choose um, a new business manager if she wants, manage the trust that has been set up for her. And that's not uncommon with celebrities to have a money management business manager and have your assets in a trust. So I am 
so excited. I mean, Rosengart has been on this case for just four months and look at how much happened. It's such a powerful statement as to why conservatives, even if they need a conservatorship and some validly do, that having their own attorney of their choice makes a tremendous difference in cases like these. And I am just thrilled for Brittany. Before we move on to our other topics, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. I am so happy to be working with Green Chef again. Their meals have been great for our family, especially as things have gotten busier with fall activities and my travel schedule. It's been really nice because my kids can help make the meals. My family loves the meals. They have worked with my tomato allergy. I literally just say, I have a tomato allergy, which is, I know, a weird one. A lot of meal kits rely so much on tomato, and they've sent great meals that work with not just the way our family likes to eat, but also with any dietary restrictions. Green Chef is actually the first USDA certified organic meal kit, so you can enjoy hand-picked organic veggies and premium proteins without having to worry about where it came from. Green Chef is America's number one meal kit for eating well, meaning that they're the best meal kit, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, pescatarian, or you just want to eat more balanced meals. And I will say, finding a meal kit that my kids will also eat is so much easier because I didn't want to have meals for my husband and I that took a long time to prepare, that were super fancy, and then still have to make dinner for my kids. So the family has really been enjoying the ease and the quickness of putting together our Green Shift meals. And it feels like we're making food together, but also it's pretty easy. And I love that. The meals have been delicious. We have some picky eaters over in this house. I might be one of them. And I want dinner to be yummy. And it has been yummy. And I am so excited that there's a discount for you as well. Go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker125 and use code emilybaker125 and get $125 off, including free shipping. Again, that is emilybaker125 at greenchef.com. And you can just go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker125. Give it a try. It is the number one meal kit for eating well. And isn't that something that can slip right out the door when we are busy eating well? So it's something we're trying to focus on around here. And if you try Green Chef, please tag me on social media and let me know. You can also use the hashtag Green Chef so they can see what you're creating with these amazing meals as well. Thank you, Green Chef, for sponsoring another episode of The Emily Show. And from the very good news in the Britney case, I've also been following a lot over the last uh, really two weeks, the Kyle Rittenhouse case in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He is charged with numerous different counts of murder and assault. I'm not going to go through all the specific charges, but today before closing arguments of the prosecution and defense began, one of the counts was dismissed. That's count six, possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. There had been a lot of uh, talk about this charge and about whether the AR rifle that he had uh, the night of these shootings that he used to shoot uh, those who defense argues was attacking him. Uh, others argue that he was out there to uh, shoot people. But the AR 
rifle that he had. It's long been argued under Wisconsin law was not illegal for him to possess based on the laws in that state regarding rifles where a handgun or other type of weapon might have been illegal for him to possess. A rifle was not, and an AR is a semi-automatic rifle, so it was not a short-barreled rifle, therefore it was not illegal for him to possess. And that had very much been one of the talking points that he you know, crossed state lines with this illegal weapon. While it wasn't an illegal weapon for him to open carry in Wisconsin, though, for those in states where you can't open carry rifles, I realize that that is probably like, wait, what? What do you mean it's legal? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, And he did not cross state lines with the weapon. The evidence that came out during testimony was pretty clear that though he does live on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin, that he um, crossed into Wisconsin, but that the weapon was already there. So he wasn't... um, he wasn't violating any laws in that way. The prosecution in their closing really hammered on the fact that they believe that Kyle Rittenhouse provoked um, others that were there that night just by being present and having a weapon and that having a weapon is really what started the uh, situations, the confrontations that led to two being fatally shot and one being shot and wounded. Uh, The defense in their closing really hammered in on the fact that Kyle was uh, in the right to use self-defense, that he did not shoot anyone until he was attacked, that he was not spraying bullets everywhere. He was shooting uh, those who were coming after him until they stopped. And then the prosecution in their rebuttal, because in a criminal trial, the prosecution closes, the defense closes, and then the prosecution gets a rebuttal because they bear Uh, the burden of proving the case beyond a reasonable doubt. They really hammered on the defense attacking them, which the defense did throughout their closing. And they, the prosecutor that closed really just yelled at the jury for like an hour um, about the fact that Kyle was a threat, about the fact that um, the defense arguments made no sense, about the other finer points of the defense argument, which the way he argued was not well taken by me at all. It's been very interesting for me watching a lot of the testimony come out in this trial and then watching the headlines about the testimony in this trial because I find a lot of the times the headlines and my takeaways have been pretty different. There's been a lot of evidence in this trial and most of it has supported the fact that Kyle was in a position to use uh, the weapon for self-defense. And that's really different when you look at the different types um, the different types of headlines throughout the course of this trial. There's been a lot made about the judge yelling at the prosecutor in this case. If you're not following the case closely, that happened uh, last week sometime. The days all become blurred when watching trial last week sometime because the prosecutor did make some, mm, I don't know if I want to call them errors because it seemed like intentional missteps, but the prosecution uh, offered evidence in front of the jury that was not legally proper to offer. It was a fairly gross violation of the defendant's right against self-incrimination, in my opinion. The prosecution, I think, was trying to argue that when Kyle testified, he had the benefit of watching all of the other testimony and then could curate a story based on what he saw the witnesses say, but that's not what the prosecutor argued. Um, even if that's what they were trying to get to. They commented on the fact that this is the first time they were hearing Kyle's testimony. Well, Kyle doesn't have to give 
testimony to the police. Kyle doesn't have to give a statement to police. He's allowed to remain silent. Um, and the judge really blew up about that because it's a really basic tenant of criminal practice. Like you can't comment on that. And it's, it's not hard. It, it's just not done. It's not ever proper. Um, and it could have caused a mistrial. I think the judge was cautious in not granting a mistrial for that, though the judge I think could have. Um, at this point, a mistrial wouldn't have gotten anyone anywhere. It would have just brought another prosecution where the witnesses may have had time to reflect on their testimony. Um, one of the witnesses who had been shot by Kyle Rittenhouse that survived, Gage Groskowitz, I hope I pronounce that properly. I've heard it pronounced differently on various different outlets, and it's always hard to figure out which one is correct. But uh, he was shot, though he was chasing Kyle. He had a um, handgun that he was carrying illegally because he was carrying it concealed and did not have a valid concealed carry permit at that point, uh, was chasing Kyle down and admitted during cross-examination that he was not shot by Kyle Rittenhouse until he pointed the Glock at Kyle Rittenhouse. And I think that that was one of those moments that kind of turned this trial, um, that where I saw the difference between the testimony and the difference between what was happening on social media and in the mainstream media was very interesting. And then Gage Groskowitz went and gave interviews saying that his testimony wasn't his testimony or that his testimony wasn't what happened. While the trial was still ongoing, I've never seen that happen. I, I think it's probably ill-advised as a witness to be giving media interviews before the jury has come back, but he was doing it anyway, saying that wasn't his testimony. And I'm sitting there going, but I watched your testimony and that's what you said. And he was, you know, that was on cross-examination. Then the prosecution had a chance to redirect and ask him to clarify, but he was very clear. Um, and the video really is fairly clear as well that those things are happening. And Gage Groskowitz is pointing a Glock at Kyle's head when he was then shot by Kyle in the arm. So it's very interesting watching this trial play out. I think there is always a possibility of a hung jury. I think there is lots of jury instructions that can be confusing because there's lots of lesser included charges here, which means if you don't think he's guilty of this, but he used self-defense, but it was imperfect self-defense and he could be guilty of this. Uh, like you think he believed maybe he could use self-defense, but maybe he couldn't. So there's a lot that the jury has to consider. There's over 42 pages of verdict forms that the jury has to consider. And that is substantial amounts of information they have to go through and a lot of if yes then this if no then that but i think there's a possibility that a jury hangs no matter what they have to come to a unanimous verdict all of them have to agree so if they acquit him on i believe it's six remaining counts um if they acquit him on that by reason of self-defense they all have to agree. If they convict him on stuff, they all have to agree. They can convict on some counts and not on other counts. They can convict on some of the lesser included and not on others. They could convict on one lesser included and nothing else. It'll be interesting to see what they do. Either way, I think the jury will be back within a few days. If they're not, if they're not back by midday on Wednesday, then I think we're looking at a hung jury no matter what. I wouldn't be surprised if they come back for verdict Tuesday. And if they do, I will try to edit a note into the show about that. So that's what's going on in the Rittenhouse trial. It's been very interesting to watch and very interesting to see the different 
the different styles of the different attorneys. It just, it's been a, it's been an interesting one. It's also been interesting watching that play out um, in headlines and on social media and in the courtroom and to really get to see it from a 360. It's really interesting to see the way people inter- interpret different information uh, differently based on their perception of Kyle Rittenhouse. Because whether you like Kyle Rittenhouse, don't like Kyle Rittenhouse, the evidence is the evidence and the facts are the facts. And if there was a threat to his life, if he believed reasonably that there was a threat to his life, then he, in some of these cases, is in a position where he can use self-defense. And based on those facts, a jury can acquit him. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. But I also wouldn't be surprised if they kind of split the verdict and confined him of some of the lesser included crimes. So not really going forward with this jury, I think not much would surprise me. No, that's not true. A full conviction of everything, of all of the um, of all of the charges, would surprise me because I don't think the evidence that I saw uh, supports that. So I'd be very surprised by that. I think that's the only thing that would surprise me um, at this point. So that's the Rittenhouse trial. As I say, that's the Rittenhouse trial and move on and then don't move on. (laughs) If If you watch my live streams, you're like, well, yeah, what else do we expect of you, Emily? But with that, there was a moment when the prosecution was closing that they picked up the AR-15 that's in evidence and was pointing the AR-15 at the jury in this case. And seeing that I've also been covering the Alec Baldwin Rust movie disaster, there was just a visceral response for me of, why are you pointing guns at these people? Like, I understand why the prosecution might want to evoke that reaction from the jury of see this rifle is threatening and you would feel threatened and in fact maybe you do feel threatened um, because in this courtroom i the prosecutor am pointing an ar-15 at you and maybe that you find to be threatening and see that's how people would have felt um with kyle rittenhouse with this gun on him it during uh the protest and then in the evenings riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But on the heels of what's going on from the Rust tragedy, it just felt, I don't know, it just felt heavy handed to me. I don't know if that's a choice I ever would have made in my career, but I often didn't have the actual weapons in court in weapons cases. And only on very rare occasion did if it was needed um, for purpose of showing size and scale. And that was generally with knives. I don't think we ever, I can't remember a case where I ever had um, a gun in court that was needed for demonstrative purposes. We generally always used uh, pictures and I almost always chose to use pictures. I don't think it was ever necessary uh, for one of my cases. But in this case, in the Rittenhouse case, the gun is very much at issue. Just like in the Rust case, the gun will very much be at issue. In the Rust case, um, the first lawsuit has been filed and it is not a wrongful death lawsuit with regard to the killing of Helena Hutchins, though I think a wrongful death suit will follow for sure. This is a lawsuit coming from the gaffer who was standing with Helena Hutchins and director Joel Souza when Alec Baldwin fired that Colt 45 at them, killing Hutchins and wounding Souza. 
The lawsuit in this case is brought by Survey Sventoy, who, as I said, was the gaffer uh, that was standing with cinematographer Hutchins and producer Joel Souza. The lawsuit brings up uh, quite a lot of details. And if you follow me on social media, you would have seen some of this when I shared this. Uh, this also happened on Friday, which is the day that Britney was freed. So my focus was kind of elsewhere, but I did share this lawsuit. It gives some pretty uh, tragic descriptions of what happened after this shooting. It also goes on and sues. Um, personally, the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, um, among others, including AD Dave Halls, a name that we've heard, all different manner of production companies, Alec Baldwin, as an individual in his individual capacity and others. So it really goes through all of the different individuals that were involved with this production and then involved with the weapon and handling of the weapon. It states that the incident was caused by the negligent acts and omissions of defendants in each of them, as well as their agents, principals, and employers. Simply put, there was no reason for a live bullet to be placed in that 45 Colt revolver or to be present anywhere on the rust set. And the presence of a bullet in a revolver posed a lethal threat to everyone in its vicinity. I can't say I disagree. It's very interesting to me that there were live bullets not dummy bullets, not blank rounds, live ammunition on this set allowed for this to happen. Had that not been the case, this might not have happened in this way, right? So that's where they're arguing the negligence here. And with that, yes, incidents do happen with blanks as well. And we've seen that in other cases, particularly with Brandon Lee and the crow, but that's not the case here. This was a live bullet. When the lawsuit breaks down the incident on set, it gives quite a bit of detail. And I'm going to go through some of that. For those watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see it as well. The incident, they say, was on or about October 21st, 2021, which we know. Filming for Rust was being conducted at the Bonanza Creek Ranch, a popular filming location south of Santa Fe, New Mexico. The property features a permanent set simulating a prototypical 19th century Western town. The incident happened in a small wooden church constructed on the Bonanza Creek Ranch site. I know a lot of you have probably seen the photos that have been in the various social media and news articles about this incident. There's, there's a number of photos from inside that were taken shortly before this happened. And so you get kind of a sense for how small that space is when they were blocking it out for lighting. The lawsuit goes on to say the scene was to be uh, filmed, called for defendant Baldwin, who was seated in a pew to reach across his chest, draw a historic reproduction 45 long Colt revolver, from a shoulder holster and pointed in the general direction of the camera. The Colt revolver was furnished to the Rust production by defendant Keeney. The scene did not call for defendant Baldwin to shoot the Colt revolver, which should not have contained any live ammunition. Standing near the camera at the time were director Joel Souza, the cinematographer Helena Hutchins, and plaintiff the gaffer. Other crew members were elsewhere in the church. Plaintiff was working with Souza and Hutchins as they set up camera angles and lighting for filming the scene, which would feature the movement of defendant Baldwin's arm. Plaintiff was positioned between defendant Baldwin to his right and Mr. 
Souza and Ms. Hutchins to his left while this was going on. Defendant Baldwin was positioned no more than six to seven feet from plaintiff as they were preparing to light the shot. What happened next will haunt plaintiff forever. And this does get into a bit of uh, detail, just fair warning. Plaintiff saw the Colt revolver being pointed at in his direction after defendant Baldwin had removed it from his shoulder holster. Suddenly and completely unexpectedly, plaintiff heard the loudest gunshot he had ever experienced on a movie set. He felt a strange and terrifying whoosh of what felt like pressurized air from his right. He felt what he believed was gunpowder and other residual materials from the gun directly strike the right side of his face and scratch the lenses of his eyeglasses he was wearing. In addition to this direct physical impact, the loudest burst of sound from the Colt revolver also impacted his hearing. Noises sounded muffled in both ears. Instinctively, plaintiff turned to his left away from the explosion, stunned and shaken by what had just happened. As he did so, he noticed Miss Hutchins on the ground, holding her lower torso area, and Mr. Souza screamed, what the fuck was that? And defendant Baldwin yelled repeatedly, what happened? Plaintiff knelt down to check on Ms. Hutchins, still not sure what had happened. There did not appear to be a wound on Ms. Hutchins' abdomen, but she exhibited considerable pain, so plaintiff helped her lay down face up and positioned his hands behind her head and back to help comfort her. He cradled her head and spoke to her, trying to keep her calm, alert, and conscious. As he held her, he noticed that the hand placed behind her back was becoming wet with her blood. The production's key medic, um, Schaefer arrived within minutes. Plaintiff indicated that Ms. Hutchins had sustained a back wound, so they gently rolled her to one side so the medic could cut off her T-shirt to inspect the wound. Plaintiff saw the medic place gauze over the wound on her back and then gently roll her back over again so the medic could check the front of Ms. Hutchins' torso. There was another wound in the vicinity of Ms. Hutchins' right armpit area. The medic was attending to her wounds. Plaintiff spoke to Ms. Hutchins, trying to keep her calm by reminding her of past and future events, but Ms. Hutchins was becoming unresponsive. The medic prepared an oxygen mask for Ms. Hutchins and charged plaintiff with seeing that it stayed on. As he did so, he saw Ms. Hutchins' eyes becoming unclear, her face becoming gray, and her lips beginning to turn black. He goes into more detail saying that the next 20 to 30 minutes felt like the longest of plaintiff's life as he tried to aid and comfort Hutchins, watching helplessly as her consciousness faded inexorably away. When the paramedics finally arrived and took control of Ms. Hutchins's care, the plaintiff left the church set, sense, uh, suddenly sensing and mentally processing all that just happened. The gun was supposed to be cold, yet the film director and his good friend, Ms. Hutchins, had both just been shot. He realized that he had been squarely in the zone of danger posed by the loaded weapon in Defendant Baldwin's hand, and what he felt passed by him from the discharge of the Colt revolver was not mere pressurized air, but for an inch or two, possibly less, that bullet could have ended his life. Overcome by emotion, shock, grief, trauma, and anxiety, he broke down and wept. I mean, I think as anyone would. They go on to say Miss Hutchins's wound proved fatal and she was pronounced dead a few hours later. They talk then about the chain of custody of the revolver, saying that plaintiff is informed and believes and alleges that prior uh, to the aforementioned scene, defendant Zachary retrieved the Colt revolver from an unknown location. Plaintiff is informed and believes and alleges that defendant Zachary failed to thoroughly inspect the Colt revolver for safety before handing it to Rust's armorer, defendant Gutierrez Reed. 
Plaintiff alleges that defendant Gutierrez-Reed loaded the Colt revolver for the forthcoming scene. As she did so, plaintiff alleges that defendant Gutierrez either failed to thoroughly inspect the gun, causing her not to realize that a live round of ammunition was present in the revolver, or loaded the revolver with at least one round of live ammunition. Plaintiff is alleging that defendant Gutierrez either released or allowed the Colt revolver to be released to defendant Pauls, that's AD we've previously mentioned, with at least one round of live ammunition in its cylinder. And just an interjection by me before we continue on with this civil lawsuit, the criminal investigation should have this gun in custody and they should be able to see what else was or have seen what else was loaded into it if it was kept in chain of custody before the police arrived and was not tampered with, opened, checked, uh, unloaded or anything like that. That should become a known thing. Um, again, unless it was subsequently opened after all of this happened, we will see what the chain of custody was afterwards uh, down the road. They go on to allege that plaintiff is informed and believes that defendant Halls, upon taking custody of the Colt revolver, failed to thoroughly and properly inspect it before shouting cold gun, an industry term indicating the firearm was not loaded with live rounds, and handing it to Baldwin. They go on to say defendant Gutierrez-Reed then left the church set. Defendant Baldwin, upon receiving the Colt uh, from Halls, failed to thoroughly inspect it with defendant Halls to ensure that it was indeed cold before rehearsing his scene with it. They go on to allege that the ammunition used on the rest set was never stored securely and was simply left unattended on the prop truck. They go on to allege that the Colt revolver was left unsecured on a prop cart for a period of time before that scene. They say following the shooting, police investigating the incident found approximately 500 rounds on the rest set cont uh, consisting of blanks, dummy rounds, and suspected live rounds, which will be easy for them to determine in the criminal investigation that is still ongoing. They then go on to allege the only cause of action in this case, which is general negligence against all of the defendants. And I think it's easy to see why, but for someone being negligent, there's no way a live round ends up in that gun on a movie set, uh, killing one, wounding another, and causing uh, the trauma to those on set, including this gaffer. So I can absolutely understand why they would bring a negligence suit. It will take time to wind its way through the LA Superior Court, but it's something I will absolutely be keeping an eye on. Before we move on to our last topic for today, we have one more sponsor for the show. So a big thank you to today's sponsor. Thank you so much to today's sponsor, Manscaped. And thank you for sending me a care package. You guys know that I am in a house full of boys <laughs> and their boys. So Manscaped was such a easy and natural collaboration. And they sent some incredible products that not just the boys use, but I also use as well. First of all, can we talk about the fact that the Weed Whacker is the greatest nose hair trimmer ever? It's fantastic. This is a gift for not just men, but also for the ladies. And they also sent the Lawn Mower 4. I love the analogies. My kid thinks that the holder for the Lawn Mower 4 looks like Emperor Palpatine's chair from Star Wars. And that was a win for our family, but it is waterproof. It doesn't cut your skin. And, you know, my youngest is like, oh, all the YouTubers I watch are also sponsored by Manscaped. So they were well familiar with the products. One of the things I really like is that they also have self-care products, body wash and shampoo. And who doesn't like a man that smells 
yummy. I do. So with Manscaped, the holidays for him are absolutely just handled. Right now, you can get 20% off your Manscaped order and free shipping using promo code LAWNERD at manscaped.com. That's manscaped.com code LAWNERD for 20% off all your gifts for him or for, um, for the personal grooming. Look, this is better than the pink ones that they sell for the ladies, just based on my personal experience. It doesn't cut your skin. It's waterproof. It comes with a bunch of attachments. So it is safe for the bits and the pieces and the shower. I think it's a fantastic product. I think that you will enjoy it too. So with the holidays coming up, you can make sure that the men in your life have their boys handled so that they are more fun to handle. <laughs> and celebrate the men in your life with Manscaped and that 20% off discount with free shipping. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. Let's get back into the legal stuff. You know, we've had a giggle. Back to the law. We are just ending with some heavy topics um, today. And it just, this one really does just hurt my heart um, with regard to the Astro World disaster. There are now over a hundred lawsuits that have been filed. The last episode where I talked about this, I said more lawsuits are coming and they are not going to stop. We'll see if these get pulled into class actions for the injured um, plaintiffs separate and apart from the deceased plaintiffs. There are now 10 who died as a result of the crowd swelling and alleged negligence at the Astroworld Festival, including uh, the nine-year-old boy who was in a coma whose family has hired attorneys to file a wrongful or to file lawsuit for him that will now be changed to a wrongful death lawsuit i'm sure in the coming days because he has passed it's just it just really does hurt my heart the more and more reports we see coming out from people who are there the more horrifying this situation becomes uh there's already conversation about what's going to happen with the insurance in this uh, incident, there's already conversation about whether the intentional acts of Travis Scott or the known and perceived risk, because he does encourage a rowdy crowd. He encourages his crowd. He uses the word rage to encourage his crowd to um, and his fans to rush the stage and things like that. So whether that was foreseeable, whether that will void out the insurance for this event will be very interesting. I think we'll see insurance filing a lawsuit saying, look, we are not responsible. This is a foreseeable event and this was preventable and they didn't bring in the proper uh, security, the proper procedures, the proper plan, the proper gating or fencing or, or whatever it was to make sure that this event was safe. And Travis Scott himself did things that incited this crowd. And therefore, um, this was, this was intentional and therefore insurance won't apply. But for that to be the case, there is a fairly high threshold to meet that the injury must be intentional. And I think it could be very hard to prove that though Travis Scott encourages a rowdy crowd, that his intent was for people to be hurt. But we have seen insurance fight over paying out in other cases. Um, and I'm sure that we will see some of that happening in this case. There was also a cancellation 
of the second night. So whether there's any cancellation clause of the policy, we will see. So insurance is absolutely something we are going to be talking about for not just the production company, but for the venue as well in the coming days. We also saw on Monday, November 15th, the CEO of the company that was hired to provide medical support speaking out about what they responded to at Astroworld. And that is a very interesting breakdown. In that press conference, as reported by CNN, the CEO of Paradox, the medic company hired by Astroworld organizers, said that the staff of more than 70 people worked hard at the event to save lives and said that the staff faced the impossible feat of treating 11 people who were going into cardiac arrest or in cardiac arrest at the same time. That indicates that they were treating like 11 people down needing CPR at the same time. He also indicated that the active threat, like the crowd surge, was also underway and protocol prohibits them from going into a situation where they might risk personal harm, yet the staff continued to go back into the dangerous crowd to help people. So indicating, again, that it's their policy that if there is a threat, they're not going into the threatening situation where they could be harmed because then the rescuer ends up needing to be rescued and needing treatment, and it can aggravate the situation. CEO Pollock said, this is something I'll have nightmares about for the rest of my life. The team is extremely broken up about it. Seeing so many young people getting CPR at one time, it's just something no one should have to go through. Even though we're medical professionals, we should be used to it. You can't get used to something like that. Um, and this comes on the heels of Houston police saying that their initial reports that one of the security guards had actually been stuck with needle were not true. This is on the continued investigation that really hasn't given us much additional use, but Pollock said that they have worked with the concert and Paradox staff was able to use radios provided by the event organizer, but we have heard from the Houston Fire Department that they were given cell phone numbers and not able to use radios, which inhibited their response to the location because they didn't have radio communications and cell communications in a 50,000 person crowd was spotty and difficult. And that the drop in the communications was one of the many things that went wrong at the location. And it'll be interesting to see what the reports find with the safety protocols that were in place and whether they were followed or not followed to aggravate this situation and the medical response to the situation. The CEO went on to say that the challenge getting in and out of the venue was out of hand and that there were dangerous crowd conditions at one of the stages hours before Scott was set to perform and that about eight minutes before Travis Scott took the stage at 9 p.m., more than 260 people had already been treated according to their logs, which did not specify the different types of injuries. Um, by 9.18, there were crush injuries that were starting to be noted and less than a half an hour into the performance is when everything fell apart, which is consistent with the timeline we heard from Houston PD saying that it was already determined by about 9.30 to be a mass casualty event. CEO Pollock continued in his statement saying, we never came close to running out of equipment and supplies. We could have treated at least double the amount of patients we never expected in our lives to encounter a situation like that. It was absolutely horrific. And that is one of the earlier reports that we heard too, that 
there was not enough um, masks for people to do CPR. And I don't know if that is that there weren't enough or that there were more people being treated and the medics could not get into where people were in the crowd. And so the crowd was treating them, but we've definitely seen reports of people trying to give aid and to give CPR without having equipment that they needed. After the press conference on the Saturday after this incident, I talked about the fact that the judge Hildago had pushed for an independent evaluation and that I was, uh, empathetic to her request and said, Hey, you know, the chief of Houston police seems to know Travis Scott. This makes sense that they might want an an independent investigation. We've already heard that the FBI is involved, but she did not get the support at the County level to authorize an independent investigation from the Harris County of commissioners. The Houston police chief told the commission that Um, an independent probe is not warranted right now and that their department is capable and going to continue an investigation into what happened. So there will not be, at this point, an independent evaluation. The investigation is going to be ongoing with Houston PD, which was interesting to me. So we will see what Houston PD comes up with if there will be an independent investigation going forward. What we do know is there are going to be a lot more lawsuits um, in addition to the hundred plus lawsuits that have already been filed with regard to Astro World. It is just uh, it, it's just staggering um, hearing the stories that have come out about this and I will continue following along with those lawsuits, not each and every one. We we do not get through all hundred lawsuits, but a lot of them are alleging the same type of negligence, failure to plan. And as we get more information, I will be covering more information. And next week, I'm hoping that we are able to get back to the Erica Girardi of it all. I was hoping to get to it this week, but some of these stories just took priority. There is a lot going on in the bankruptcy, and there is a hearing coming up that I think will be very illuminating with motions from Jay Edelson from Edelson PC, the attorney who filed that initial lawsuit in Illinois against Erica Girardi and some of the other attorneys at Girardi Keys. They are also still pending. Those two attorneys, uh, Griffin and Lyra, are still pending a contempt hearing in Illinois. There is back and forth about whether Erica will have to defend that lawsuit in Illinois or whether she is going to be protected by the bankruptcy stay in the case in Los Angeles. And there is all of the Tiger King of it all. Tiger King is set to premiere uh, this Wednesday, November 17th, but we will see if it actually makes it to air because there is a hearing with regard to Carol Baskin's lawsuit against Netflix that is getting ready to be heard to see what will happen. I suspect we will all see Tiger King hit Netflix on Wednesday and that if there was not an actual appearance release signed, that the court will say monetary damages are the way to go, not pulling the entire show. So lots to get to next week. Lots on the docket for us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being honored. Thank you for making us one of the top entertainment news podcasts out there. Two years in, over 500,000 downloads and lots of honored love and support. I love seeing your reviews come in on the podcast on Apple 
And I love seeing all the comments on these videos when they go live on YouTube. If you're not following me on social, I share more about these stories there at the Emily D. Baker. Come hang out, come join the conversation. And if you want to join the conversation in a more in-depth way, you can always do that on Patreon. The links are all down below. That's at lawnardsunite.com. So raise a glass together and let's see if we can get this. Look, the outro happens as it happens. I should just pre-record it and then it would never get messed up. But no, I feel like the outro is now the thing. It started at the beginning of the Panini, but it is just ongoing. And I feel like it's just where we're at in the world. So may your Wi-Fi be strong. Boy, may your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you, Lonard. I will see you next week. <laughs>